Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this episode of the Brain Rules Podcast. Um, so Madeline can't be with us this episode because she had something come up, so it'll just be me for this episode. So today, we're actually going to talk a little bit more about stress. And with me as our guest for this topic is fifth-year PH candidate Brooke Dulka. Hello, everyone. Uh, so as a uh... And you kind of said, my name is Brooke Dalka. I'm a doctoral candidate in the biological psychology program here at UTK. And uh, my research interest is stress. I'm uh, My dissertation is focused on the neurochemistry and neural circuitry of stress resilience. Yep. So uh, during Brain Awareness Week, we had Dr. Matthew Cooper on to talk a little bit about uh, stress and his lab and the kind of things that he focuses on. So we wanted to take a step further into this episode and talk a little bit more about what exactly is stress, uh, what are some things are involved with the mechanisms and neural circuitry behind stress. Um, so Brooke, let me just go ahead and ask you, what exactly is stress? So yeah, I mean, if we were to operationally define stress, um, operationalization is this process of turning a concept or uh, into a measurable factor. Uh, I would operationalize stress. I might say something about increased heart rate, blood pressure, and uh, cortisol release. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so what exactly is cortisol? So cortisol is uh, it's a glucocorticoid, which is just the primary stress hormone in your in your body. Um, it's the end product of the HPA or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. Mm-hmm. So uh, when people think of cortisol, you know it's just the stress hormone. It mobilizes your body for action. Okay. Um, so how is this? So like the operational definition that you just gave, how could that be similar or different to how other people might view what stress is? Well, uh, that's a really good question because most people uh, think about stress as a purely psychological construct, but it's important to keep in mind that it's a biological process too, and it's initially designed to mobilize the body and protect you from harm, not cause you to be stressed out about finals, but to protect you. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of, um, so it's still like the same like evolutionary mechanism that we had like in... Uh, like previously down the road, like our ancestors. Right, exactly. Okay, um, so are there different kinds of stress? Well, I come from you know this world of rodent stress research, and in the world of rodent stress research, we typically think of stress in two ways. Uh, there's chronic stress and acute stress. Chronic stress is typically associated with depression, whereas acute stress is more related to anxiety. Um, Okay, so can you talk a little bit more about what exactly is acute stress and chronic stress? So I know you said like acute is more related to anxiety and chronic is more related to depression. Can you get into that a little bit more? Yeah, so um, you know, it's all about how these models play out in the laboratory. Um, acute stress is more of like stress that happens one or two times, mm-hmm. like typically over the period of like one day. So in my lab, Dr. Matt Cooper's lab, actually, uh, we study acute stress. So we stress animals out for one day and then study the, the reactions that follow. Um, but chronic stress is typically more prolonged. So a lot of rodent models that utilize chronic stress, they're, they're stressing animals out for like 10 days consecutively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like I said, you know, the chronic stress that's kind of associated with depression, anhedonia, like lack of interest in like sucrose and a sucrose preference test, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of an indicator of depression. If you think about depression, you know, people are anhedonic. They don't want to 
partake in things that normally make them happy. Well, rodents do the same thing too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on the terms of anxiety with acute stress, you know, this is shorter, more acute, you know, thinking about post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. It's all about how we model these uh, things in the laboratory and how they relate to things in the real world, like depression or PTSD. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so what, uh, you, you mentioned that like a lot of people kind of think of stress as like a psychological concept, but there's also a biological factor in it too. So could you talk a little bit more about like the physiological effects of stress? Right. So once a stressor is initiated, there's this cascade of biological or physiological events that follow. The sympathetic nervous system, otherwise known as the fight or flight system, uh, comes online and increases your heart rate, blood pressure, and adrenaline release. Then the HPA axis, or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, is also activated, eventually causing the glucocorticoids, such as cortisol, that stress hormone we talked about, to be released from the adrenal glands. And so that's really when we think about this, these physiological effects of stress, like this is what's going on, you know, this HPA axis and your sympathetic nervous system coming online to, again, mobilize you to prepare yourself for uh, survival. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then so that really hasn't, like, uh, gone away from whenever we were, like, running away from predators. Like, that still system is still online when we have to face, like, finals or work-related stress. Exactly. Uh, It's kind of interesting how these systems have kind of evolved over time. You know, the biological mechanisms are still largely the same, but now... um, we're kind of more in this social world where the things that are stressing us out are these social factors uh, rather than uh, being chased by a lion, for example. <laughs> right. Yeah, I I definitely feel like uh, I haven't run away from lions recently. So that, yeah, I can definitely uh, see that. Um, so are there any specific pathways and circuitry involved with stress response? I know you mentioned the HPA axis and a little bit about uh, cortisol and the glucocorticoids. Yeah, so those are more peripheral kind of events going on, although they start in the hypothalamus, which is the central brain region. But um, in the brain, there's many pathways and circuits involved in the stress response. Um, and these pathways involved in the stress response are actually quite complicated. When we think of stress, we typically think of the amygdala. This is the fear center of the brain. But other brain regions play important roles too. The activation of the HPA axis starts in the hypothalamus. But then there's the prefrontal cortex. Neural pathways from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala are important in regulating responses to fear or stress. Mm-hmm. Specifically, the prefrontal cortex helps to inhibit the amygdala and promote stress resilience. But let's not forget about the hippocampus. Although primarily associated with memory, its connections with the amygdala are also very important for stress. Mm-hmm. But we're only scratching the surface of these brain regions that can be involved, though, in these stress reactions. Take this nucleus accumbens, for instance. It's typically thought of being involved in addiction and reward, but it also plays a critical role in stress-related behavior. Mm-hmm. So there's, like, multiple regions of the brain that are involved with stress response. It's not just one central area. Correct. Okay. Um, so... Uh, going off of that, um, since there is, since there are multiple areas of the brain that are involved with that, um, is everyone's stress response the same? Uh, absolutely not. Not everyone responds to stress in the same way. Some people are more resilient to the effects of stress than others. Take post-traumatic stress disorder, for instance. Two people may go through the same trauma, but only one of those individuals develops PTSD. Scientists are trying are currently trying to figure out why this happens. Mm-hmm. What makes that person who didn't develop PTSD resilient? Unfortunately, this is a really complicated question with many factors that can either protect or put a person at risk. Mm-hmm. The good news is, though, there are things you can do to help increase your own resilience to stress. For instance, exercise has been shown to play a protective role in stress uh, in stress reactions. Oh, okay. 
Um, do you know like how exactly that helps? Or um, I think a lot, of, especially the hip, uh, the exercise factor. A lot of it comes down to hippocampus. Exercise mm-hmm. helps remodel the hippocampus, increase neurogenesis, or the creation of new cells. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's kind of like that brain region is particularly sensitive to exercise and uh, can result in these protective effects of stress. Oh, okay, so. That's really cool. I never thought, like, I've always heard that exercise is really important, obviously, but I didn't realize it could, like, directly affect the, like, generation of new, like, brain cells. Right. Yeah, so not too many people know about that. And, uh, you know, the typical, you know, kind of thought there was that, you know, once a brain cell dies, you're never going to get it back. Well, that may be true, but, you know, it's also, you know, new cells are born in the brain, particularly in the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus, Mm -hmm. So, which is really cool if you ask me. Yeah. (laughs) So... Um, can you actually talk about a little bit more about your research? I know you said you're kind of like involved with like stress research and resiliency. Yeah, so I'm really interested in that whole resilient aspect of stress. What makes some individuals resilient to stress? Well, in our lab, uh, the, doc- the lab of Dr. Matthew Cooper, we studied dominance relationships and how dominance status can protect an individual from the stress. Well, what my research has been focused on is what are the circuits that a dominant hamster is activating that may be promoting this stress resistance we see. And so currently, I've, I've identified a circuit from the prefrontal cortex to the basolateral amygdala that dominants are activating. Now I'm trying to activate the same circuit using a viral vector technique in subordinate hamsters to see if I can instill a resilient phenotype in those animals. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting, actually. We have these, you know, these viruses that we inject into the animal's brain, and it upregulates a mutated acetylcholine receptor that can only be activated by a specific inert drug that we give the animal. Uh-huh. And then we can, you know, we have can have these tight temporal controls over specific neural pathways. And so this new technique is called DREADS, designer receptors exclusively activated by designer drugs. And mm-hmm. it's been really interesting and uh, has been really great for memory research and stress researchers uh, in answering some of these really uh, critical questions. That's really awesome. So whenever you mention, like, the, the dominant subordinate hamsters, is that more related to, like, the social stress aspect you talked about? Yeah, so um, as I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, the biggest stress that humans face is social stress, stress that humans are experiencing from other humans mm-hmm. and, uh, and other environmental factors related to social situations. And so we think of social stress, so, you know, we pick that as our stressor in our lab because it's what we consider the most ethologically relevant form of stress because mm-hmm. that's what humans face, that's what uh, other primate species are face, is social stress. And so if you're going to study stress in a lab, you should try to make it as uh, relevant to the real world as possible. So that's why we use a social stress. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I'm, uh, you also mentioned, uh, like, uh, in terms of uh, like monitoring your stress, kind of like building up that resiliency, that exercise is a good like way to do that. Are there any other ways that we could monitor or kind of like build up that resiliency to stress? So that's a great question. So sleep. Sleep is also <laughs> really critical for uh, you know stress reactions and stress resilience. And so I think that's particularly important for uh, us uh, undergraduates and graduate students to keep in mind. You know, we, yeah. keep, we keep odd schedules and stay up all night, night stay up all night studying and so we kind of neglect that aspect of our mm-hmm. life. But, you know, sleep is really important for memory consolidation and uh, stress and uh, stress maintenance. And another thing you can do, though, is just be aware of your mood. Being aware of your mood is a good way to regulate it. So just pay attention to your body and what your body's telling you. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Um, yeah, I know for me, I probably don't sleep as much as I should. I know a lot of people who do the exact same thing. Um, so I will try and keep that in mind in terms of uh, trying to monitor my stress. Um, is there anything else you would like to add? I just uh, would add that, you know, I think right now we're all at a great time in our lives because we have access to these, these library systems that allow mm-hmm. us to actually get at the research. You know, research is hidden behind paywalls a lot of times. Not yeah. everything is open access. And so right now we're at a really great time that we can, you know, we can get at those articles, get on PubMed, get on Google Scholar, look up those articles about stress mm-hmm. and ways you can monitor your own stress. You know, I, I talk a lot about animal research, but there's a lot of human research out there that's answering these, trying to answer these same questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's other ways you can learn about stress, uh, you know, get involved with stress research on campus, you know, the, the labs of Dr. Matthew Cooper and Kaylin Schulz are both uh, studying stress and so, you know, just get involved. Yeah. Okay. Um, I actually have a couple more questions that, like, kind of go through some of the previous topics, if that's okay. Okay. Um, so, yeah, this is, uh, this is um, a question based on, like, the acute versus chronic stress. Um, so do you know if, um, like, certain brain regions are affected after exposure to acute stress versus chronic stress? Like, is there any sort of, like, specific reaction there's a lot of overlap between chronic stress and acute stress reactions. You know, a lot of it comes down to the amygdala and prefrontal cortex, but uh, oftentimes I think with chronic stress, the nucleus accumbens is a little more involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas with acute stress, you might be involved in more of these extended amygdala circuits, such as the bed nucleus of the striate terminalis. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all we have for today's episode. I want to thank uh, Brooke Dolko for coming out and answering all of these questions about stress. And as well as like giving some pointers about how to monitor and take care of yourself regarding uh, like your stress response. And that is all we have for today. So we will see you in the next episode. Thank you for having me. Yep.